This is the Ritz and Cures podcast. Ritz and Cures and Ritz and Cures Hear their mighty overtures Lawyers, doctors, matching wits With Ritz and Cures and Cures and Ritz Nick, Carr, Bill O'Shea Just in time to save the day Integrating institutes with stitches, wigs and sutured suits And also Dr. Deborah Lawson She's a lawyer, ain't that awesome? Dr. Lawyer, fresh recruits for hot pursuits of fresh disputes Bill and Nick, Nick and Bill If they can't save you, no one will See them work their wicked arts With pleasing charts and fits and starts They lend their smarts to beating hearts like yours With Ritz and Cures Sensational Thank you very much, gentlemen Uh, Welcome to Ritz and Cures It's Bill O'Shea and Dr. Nick Carr Here in the room, ready to start chopping it up and laying it down. That audience of two, that'd be one of the biggest you've ever had, wouldn't it? <laughs> Do you know what was really good was we weren't tempted to try and harmonise that. So oh, you, you I, can I, thank us afterwards. I wanted you to. I wanted to hear everyone in. <laughs> so those of us, well, those of our listeners who are still with us after that, I thought we might say something about what we're going to talk about tonight. <laughs> I think we should. So it's all about prescription drugs to start with and yeah. dr carr's got a hobby horse he's on a soapbox so go for it so the, the soapbox tonight i get very excited about this because prescription medication misuse is a huge problem in australia it's a problem worldwide but uh, i'm not now talking about stuff we talked about before like antibiotics i'm talking about addictive medications and this was brought to my attention because ABC Late Line did a story on this a couple of weeks ago where mm. they really focused on the opiates, uh, the drugs like Endone, OxyContin, and the number of people who don't just get addicted to these things but are dying from misuse of them. Mm. And people don't realize, but we actually kill more people with our prescription medications in this country than die from the road toll. Now, that's mm. a really astonishing and terrifying figure. We, when you say we, you mean UGPs. I mean, people, so the coroner's court are constantly saying this person's death was preventable. It was due to, and usually combination, it's not just one drug, it's usually combination of medications. And this person died from taking a combination, say, of Valium, Endone, alcohol. Mm. People don't realise how dangerous well, this I is. Well, don't we warn about the risks? So this is something which I get very cross about because these drugs are dished out by doctors every single day, vast quantities. Uh, I mean, there were 7 million prescriptions for benzodiazepines issued in the last year. What what are benzodiazepines? Benzodiazepines are things like diazepam, Valium, things like Alprazolam, Xanax, Tamazepam, sleeping tablet, those sorts of things. And why would they be prescribed for somebody... So they're used for all sorts of things. They're used for anxiety. They're used for insomnia. They're used for stress. And they, they have their role. They can be helpful drugs. They're, they're what we call a symptom reliever. And short-term, carefully used, they have a place. But people don't realize just how addictive they are. And once people start on these things, and this is where I get cross because doctors don't warn people about this. So they dish out, say, oh, you've had a you know, bad couple of weeks, you're really stressed about work or relationship breakup. Here, have some Valium. And the patient says, oh, I feel much better because mm. they work. And then two weeks later, they're still feeling better and they go back and get some more. A month later, they're addicted. Yeah. 
And it's not something that, uh, do you think it's not only the initial prescription that's not being sort of policed strongly enough, but the continuing mm. re-prescription of the patients? It's a really good point. So it starts with that first prescription. It happens with the opiates as well. My 17-year-old son had his wisdom teeth done. He came away from the hospital with a packet of 20 endone. Did anyone warn him that these things mm. were addictive? That they mm. were dangerous? Not a single word. Oh, take these for pain. So it starts with that first script where doctors just dish them out too liberally, and then exactly what you're saying, Casey. They they follow up and say, "Oh, you need some more." Here's another prescription. What about people who can't get pain relief, who have chronic pain, and the only way they get any relief is with a one of your opiates. Yeah, so it's not that we should never prescribe opiates. There are people with severe pain who need opiates. Of course, people with cancer who need opiates. But opiates are not actually a great drug for long-term non-cancer pain. There's this bizarre process that happens. It can actually exaggerate the patient's experience of pain so they can become counterproductive. So A, you get hooked on the opiate and B, you then end up with more pain. You get on this cycle of needing more and more. I can see a psychological situation where because you're addicted to the opiate, you need now to have the pain in order to have the opiate. Mm. And what a lot of people feel is, and these things are being prescribed by a doctor, they've got to be safe, they've got to be okay. So a lot of people have no problem going back. They think this isn't a street drug, so what can the harm possibly be? But they are very dangerous. I I know somebody in aged care who's given a a, a painkiller every four hours, but they have no pain. It's just routine in the aged care facility to hand out... Um, basically, you know, panadine type paracetamol every four hours. Now, obviously, it's hard for me to comment on the individual case, but it may actually. What's the point? It, well, it could actually be good pain management because but that they don't per- have pain. But that person could be free of pain because actually they've been well treated by regular analgesia. That's pain relief. Mm. The difference is if you're giving someone some regular paracetamol, for instance, which is safe, doesn't matter. If you're giving people regular opiate drugs, uh, people don't realise, so panadine is paracetamol plus codeine. And codeine is a drug which is widely available over the counter in low dose and on prescription at higher dose. And is addictive. So codeine is a kind of pro-drug that is metabolised through the liver and turns out into the system as morphine. So it's, it's, it's another opiate. It's morphine under a different guise. Is there any um, sense to the sort of uh, proposal that uh, with pain management, the trick is to get onto it as soon as possible so that you can get off it as soon as possible? And it, I think that's a really good point. The, it's much easier to manage pain if we get in earlier rather than it gets well entrenched. But at the same time, managing pain is a hell of a lot more than just dishing out larger and larger quantities so, of addictive drugs. So, so who's educating the, the doctors? I mean, this is doctor education. Isn't, isn't that what this is about? Yeah, it's, it's like so many of these things. That, to get this right, to stop stop this sort of sea of opiates and benzos out there one one arm of that needs to be education and i i I think we doctors have to take much more responsibility the medical professions all too ready to say oh it's those terrible patients they're demanding this stuff and it makes it very difficult well yes they do they only demand it because you wrote the prescription in the first place We have to take the responsibility of not writing the but, scripts but medicine, so readily. But medicine's not a demand industry, is it? You don't go to a doctor and demand things and expect to be given them. Well, this is 
where we get into the territory of what's called prescription shopping misuse or doctor shopping, where people actually do go to lots of different doctors. And a little plug here for um, ABC Late Line, the TV show, on this Thursday night, because that's exactly what that program is going to be looking at. Uh, doctor shopping. About doctor shopping. Uh, and it will feature a wonderful... It'll recommend the best doctors, the best, the best places to go. For... <laughs> there are websites where people exchange that sort of information. Mm. Is that right? That, yes. Uh, and that program will actually feature a wonderful woman who works with me now, who was a doctor shopper for 32 years, so she knows it inside out. And now is trying to reform the system. She works with me and teaching around this whole topic. So there are people who do go to lots of different doctors demanding these sorts of drugs, and it's a difficult consultation. But even so, it's up to us whether or not we write those scripts. Now, are there, are there any credible or, you know, um, educational or internet resources that you can go to? To get um, the straight, the straight dope seems like the wrong phrase to use entirely, but uh, to get information on on prescription, particular prescription drugs. And so this is something which doctors have actually been calling for. The coroner's been calling for this. Mm. That the doctors need this. They need mm. a site where they can go to to find out has someone been using these drugs before. In other words, should I give them another script or are they in fact misusing them? And this brings into play a thing called a real-time prescription monitoring service. And the Victorian government pledged $30 million in 2016 in the budget to implement here in Victoria a real-time prescription monitoring service, which would be a huge boon for this because it would mean when someone walks in and says, I need some more endone and Valium, I've just come from Echuca and I left my prescriptions behind, so give me some more doc. The doctor can go online and say, oh, well, hang on. You hang on, you went into the pharmacist in Echuca, in Moama, precisely. in Seymour, and yeah. Yesterday four, and the day before. Four prescriptions in the last week. No, I'm not giving them to you. Yeah. So, what's, so this is an online system? So, so that the pharmacist would key in the details of the patient and up would come the prescribing history. Other places around the world have Dispensing this already, history. and this is an online system. They've had it in parts of America for some time. They have it in Tasmania. It's been working in Tasmania for some years. It's called the DORA system. Tasmania used to have one of the highest per capita prescribing rates of opiates in Australia. It now has one of the lowest, and they've reduced their overdose and death rate hugely as a result. And the way it works is that pharmacists and doctors are connected via an internet system so that you can then go online and you can find out whether the pharmacist or doctor, whether someone's had that prescription before. When we talk about doctor education, isn't there also the, the sort of cross effects of different kinds of drugs? Uh, mm. um, I, I can imagine some kind of... Uh, internet resource or engine where you can say drug A and drug J. I would like to prescribe both of those, and and the thing would go wah, wah, wah. A and J are going to do this together. Yeah. It, Isn't that what happened to Heath Ledger? Yeah, and to, to, to Heath died of a combination of opiates, benzos, and alcohol. Uh, he. Some people thought he committed suicide. He absolutely did not. He actually had a meeting the next day with Steven Spielberg. He was very excited, and he was he took these things to try and settle himself down and go to sleep. And it was a combination that killed him. Mm. Uh, Heath's dad, Kim, is actually patron 
of an organization that I work for, an organization called Scriptwise. And if people, you asked earlier, Casey, about information, if people want some information, um, consumers out there think, where do I go to to find out about this stuff? Jump onto the website for Scriptwise. Just Google that one word. Sorry, your favorite search engine. That one word. That's right. That's right. Please. <laughs> Oops. And uh, for all those using AltaVista and, and Bing, <laughs> such an injustice. Uh, but Kim's been a very uh, vocal um, patron of that organization because, of course, having lost his son to this awful combination of prescription mm-hmm. drugs and alcohol, he would dearly love to see that not happening to anyone else. Now, we've had a couple of people text in asking about specific, uh, you know, the effects of specific drugs and all that sort of stuff. I think we're given the format that we're in, we should say... Uh, if you want that kind of information, we, we do encourage you to go to your doctor or to seek a second opinion if you think your doctor isn't giving you um, a straight-up answer on that stuff. Um, you agree, wouldn't you? You can't really yeah, it's, do so individual – you can't give individual advice yeah, in a situation this, like this. Clearly, this is a very complicated area, and if people are concerned about specific drugs, they probably need to go to their regular prescriber and and find someone that you you trust, someone who's not just dishing these things out willy-nilly. You need someone who you can trust to give you proper information. But what people need to be aware of is that the risks... The risks come from combining these things. Mm. So something like Valium, um, Casey, you're much too young. You won't remember this. <laughs> I remember Valium being uh, – being, uh, I remember it in popular culture, if you know what I mean. I remember Valium being used uh, uh, recreationally as a, as a popular culture trope. And, and it came in as, as this safe alternative to the barbiturates. So our previous mm. sedatives, when people were anxious, couldn't sleep, were barbiturates, which were highly dangerous, highly addictive. And along came this wonderful new drug with a group of drugs, the benzodiazepines, Valium, the best known, diazepam is its proper chemical name. It was supposed to be not addictive. What a load of rubbish that turned mm. out to be. Mm. But Valium, you, you would really struggle to kill yourself with Valium on its own. But Valium as a prescription drug kills more people than any other because when you combine it with alcohol, opiates, other drugs – it can be fatal. It's just going to dull the senses enough so that you don't spot the warning signs of using the other drug, presumably. So do doctors or... have brochures on this in their in their uh, rooms where they can give these to patients? Don't mix this with alcohol. Don't mix it with drug... As a case of drug J, don't mix drug A with drug J. Unfortunately, our waiting rooms are so awash with brochures. I'm not sure that written material like it's that is... the only chance up. I catch up with Who magazine. I've got to tell you, it's the only time I ever get who to catch up. Re- whoever reads the brochures in the doctor's... <laughs> And but they should, if you, but if you're giving them a script, shouldn't you give them a brochure at the same time as the script? My view would be before you even give them a brochure, you should be giving them a a small quantity because you shouldn't give them plenty of these things, and b you should be giving them so many warnings about the risks of these things that they're terrified and don't want to take the bloody thing in the first place. Mm. I wonder if that is one of the things though that gets in the way of there being a resource that you say you know drug A and drug J because I can imagine that being. Uh, you know, a politicised and commercialised and a wrestling ground very quickly amongst people going, well, drug J is actually fantastic and never did anyone any harm. (laughs) And and all of these drugs are promoted as being safe, of course, by the companies that make them. And on their own, they are safe, but combinations, dangerous. So we need more information about combinations, which is the A&J argument. We don't have any information that we, the public... You know, here I am, I'm going to the GP and I might feel a bit anxious and I might have a headache and I'm getting over a chest infection and 
you you give me these drugs in combination and I've got no idea whether I'll fall asleep and never wake up. And you're a bit of a drinker on the side. Yeah, not well, about no one even thought about, about drinking. The theoretical bit no one mentioned here. drinking. So the alcohol on top of the opiate on top. And uh, another thing that people need to be aware of is uh, a good move coming up uh, in February 2018, early next year, is that codeine compounds will go prescription only. So you'll no longer be able to buy codeine-containing compounds over the counter, which in my view is a very good move because at the moment people can go... I have people who take... Panadine, 15, 20 a day just to get the codeine. We do have someone who's tweeted in saying over the counter codeine is bad. For opioid addicts, extracting pure codeine is an easy process. It should be prescription only. So thank you very much, Mr. Tweeter or Ms. Tweeter, because that's exactly what the change in the regulations are. Is that the plus thing, like Nurofen Plus? Is that codeine? So generally, the plus on those things uh, is the codeine. And when you buy it over the counter, it may only have 8 or 15 milligrams, which then means people take this huge dose of paracetamol or ibuprofen, the other component, in order to get the codeine. And they actually get liver or kidney damage from the other components that they're taking unwittingly because mm. they want the codeine. Mm. All right. Well, that's well, a bit of a nightmare for all of us. It is indeed. I, so. And what gets me is it sneaks up on you. Like you have your gin and tonic before you, you have dinner and you've just swallowed a Breakfast, Bill. You were going to say breakfast. Yeah. Come on. Or in Jeff Kenneth's case before <laughs> nine o'clock, um, he'll have a whiskey. And, you know, if Jeff's been on... You know, a few drugs for various things. He won't know what's hit him. We are talking about a hypothetical Jeff Kennett. No, he said this morning (laughs) that he's he's driven to have a whiskey before nine o'clock. The the state of the Liberal Party at the moment, which I thought was quite a very funny quote. But if he was actually having a whiskey before nine a.m. And he had these drugs. I mean, and, he would, he would never know. He's uh, not a little doctor. I'm not a doctor. But that's exactly how it happens. It's, it creeps up on you. That's exactly right. So people who've been in hospital, they've had a car accident, motorbike accident. They come out on a bit of panadine or some endone or some oxycontin. And then, oh, you know, feel a lot better on that. Go and get some more. And people who were never – these aren't street drug addicts. These are ordinary people. Mm. Nothing against street drug addicts. But, but these aren't people who have a history of drug abuse. These are ordinary people. They can be older people, younger people. It, it, it's non-discriminatory. And it can happen to absolutely anyone. And it's extraordinary how it, it can just escalate, so, starting from just simple, regular use. So script-wise, we'll start when? So Scriptwise is, a, is an organisation already up and running. Google it, have a look at the oh, website. The real-time prescription service, I mean. So the real-time prescription monitoring service is slated to start the middle of 2018. Okay. You've been listening, you are listening to Ritz and Cures in the middle of evenings with Dr Nikar and Bill O'Shea. You had Nick. Can Bill, now you want more sun time for Dr. Deborah Lawson. She's in here to give her facts on law and cancer. Don't turn back, but keep on with us here tonight. Inventing songs is a bit of a plight, but we do what we can for Dr. Deborah, Bill and Nick. Uh, going to plan.
Dear me. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's a beautiful thing. It's just gone up by 50% since the last song. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's a full stadia now. <laughs> Three folks around the mic. Dr. Deborah Lawson, thank you for joining us on Ritz and Cures tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, and now we're going to... Uh, uh, we're, we're delving, aren't we? We're delving yeah. deeply into a topic which is... Uh, I should introduce Dr. Deborah Lawson as the Legal Policy Advisor at the McCabe Centre for Law and Cancer at Cancer Council of Victoria. I want to clarify immediately that, that the centre isn't for cancer in the way that, you know, pro-cancer. No, it's, we're against it's cancer. Very much. Yeah. It's not, not such a contra- controversial position uh, to be against cancer, but yeah. it's a centre for combining law and cancer, the use of law in uh, for patients with cancer and support for patients with cancer. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Oh, good. I haven't, I haven't gone crazy with it. No. So, um, I mean... We should begin by asking what what are the sort of basic services that that the centre provides? Okay, so we're a uh, specialist centre for law and cancer, but against cancer, as you <laughs> as you say. Um, so we aim to contribute to the effective use of law and cancer prevention and cancer treatment and supportive care and in research. And I think it might not be immediately obvious to people what's the connection between law and cancer and all of those different areas of cancer, but the law is a really powerful tool in cancer prevention. For example, we can regulate risk factors for cancer, like tobacco control. It also has a really important um, role in cancer treatment and ensuring that, for example, patients have access to safe and effective treatments, um, that they can uh, seek health care from providers they know are appropriately trained and qualified, um, that we have laws around informed decision-making consent laws, there's anti-discrimination protections for people who have had cancer or have a cancer diagnosis. So we look at the whole spectrum of um, how we can use the law effectively and encourage people's understanding of the law in all of those different areas. It's an enormously wide brief, isn't it, when you take sure it like is. that? It's sort yeah. of so many different areas that it comes into. Do you, do you find yourself uh, sort of dabbling in different parts of the law depending on what day it is or what hour it is, or do you special have sort of specialists for particular areas? Yeah, we have specialists for particular areas. So... Um, We're a pretty small team. We've got six lawyers and about half of us work on cancer prevention issues and the other um, half work on cancer treatment and supportive care. But then even within that focus, which is my focus, there are a whole range of different areas of law and more and more come up as well. And if there are issues in the media or there's new law or policy reform coming up, then we'll um, be guided by that as well. Before we talk about law reform, can you tell us why is your centre called the, Mac- the McCabe Centre for uh, Law and Cancer? Sure. It's, a, it's an interesting story, actually. So we're named for Rolla McCabe, who was a really brave Victorian woman who actually um, took a case against British American tobacco in the Victorian Supreme Court in 2001. Um she developed uh, smoking-related lung cancer as a result of starting smoking at a fairly young age in the 1960s. Unfortunately, um, Rolla died during the court proceedings, but her family continued um, with the case. And it was in the courts for about 10 years until it was 
um, eventually settled confidentially and Roller's family and her legal team contributed some funds to the establishment of the McCabe Centre for Law and Cancer to create a legacy to Roller's courage in taking the fight to the tobacco industry. Mm. Was that the case that uh, that revealed destruction of documents yes, as well? Yes, it was. So it was a really important case. So it changed the law on... Yeah. On, the, on the the retention of documents by lawyers, yeah, yeah quite a notorious, uh, mm. notorious case. You mentioned Deborah. Um, one of your roles is about discrimination against people with cancer, which actually really surprised me in this day and age. Where, where does discrimination occur? So, there's a range of areas in which it could occur, and I'm I'm happy to say that most of the people that we speak with about their experience of cancer have quite positive experiences with their employers for example um, and in other areas of life but um, because we're seeing I think higher rates of cancer survival now we've got more people who have cancer and continue to work while they have cancer or return to work after cancer Um, and people naturally worry about taking leave or um, perhaps taking six to 12 months off work and then returning. They worry about whether they have to tell their workmates that they have cancer, whether that means people will treat them differently or they might be overlooked for promotions or that kind of thing. Um, And also an access to insurance products. So anecdotally, um, we hear that a lot of cancer patients can struggle to get travel insurance, for example, after a cancer diagnosis. These well, that's a huge issue. Uh, a, a friend of mine has exactly that issue of travel insurance mm. being denied, or a claim being denied on the basis mm. of being a, uh, you know, a cancer patient where the where the claim has nothing to do with the treatment mm. uh, or the you know the illness. Mm, so, exactly. is that a, a war you're waging on behalf of cancer patients with insurers, or how how do you get change in that area? It's a really difficult area to get change in. It is something that we've um, done a bit of work on and in particular I think our role in that area has focused on educating people about what their rights are. So we have the um, Commonwealth Disability Discrimination Act that prohibits discrimination on the basis of cancer but unfortunately um, in that act there is an exception for insurers and they can make distinctions um, based on reasonable data that that shows that the risk to them is too great to insure people. Um, but often um, I think it's questionable whether they really do have that data to mm. to show that the person is too risky to insure. So our work in this area has primarily been letting people know what their rights are and that they have a right to request that information from the insurance company and say, well, prove to me that I'm too much of a risk. And there was a really interesting case um, On a different matter, it was about someone who had an increased genetic risk to cancer trying to get life insurance. And there was a really um, interesting case study done about this man's situation where he went to three different insurers. Eventually he made a complaint to the Human Rights Commission and he told the insurer that he had done that and then they backed down and gave him insurance because I think they realised that they couldn't provide the evidence. They had no diagnosis, just a, a possible prognosis based on genetic family history. So originally he just had family history, but then he did undergo genetic testing and it was found that he did have a higher risk for colorectal cancer. But he was a scientist, um, so he was in a really good position to review all of the research articles that showed that with regular surveillance and um, 
colonoscopies that he was actually at the exact same level of risk for colorectal cancer that anyone in the community was. Mm. Mm. It seems like it, it, it's one of those uh, areas where if you're... Um if you got the knowledge ahead of time, and, mm. and that that's sort of something that that, that the McCabe Institute, the McCabe Centre, can supply more readily, uh, if you like, than uh, I'm just imagining folks arguing the discrimination case in court and thinking how how difficult that would be to be able to say, oh no, I was definitely discriminated against. It wasn't to do with my performance or anything like that, compared to mm. the knowledge beforehand of. If they try and pull this kind yeah. of thing, you push back in these areas. Yeah, exactly. It's always better to be able to resolve these kinds of situations in a more amicable way than having to go to court. So being aware of your rights. Um, so do you look to cancer patients to bring these cases to you, to your office? Um yeah, you're like a community legal service for no, cancer no, so patients. I'll, I'll make that um, mm. that distinction, I guess. So, so we um, undertake uh, law reform submissions, uh, advocacy at a systemic level rather than at an individual client level, and education and capacity building for clinicians and people affected by cancer. But the way we're kind of informed by cancer patients' experiences is through having a really great relationship with our cancer nurses at Cancer Council Victoria. Yep. Um, so they often will um, <clears throat> tell us that they're hearing about a lot of people worried about a particular legal issue, and, and that will steer us in certain directions. But also, can I just say, um, Cancer Council has a pro bono referral service, a pro bono legal referral service that people can be connected to if they call our Through, the, through the McCabe Centre? No, that's through the Cancer Council generally. Right. So if people call 13, 11, 20 and speak to one of our nurses, um, then they can be um, potentially referred to pro bono legal services. Which means they, you don't pay. Yeah. Mm. So, so Deborah, the obvious example where law has made a huge impact on cancer risk is around smoking, mm -hmm. uh, and that's a, a one everybody be familiar with. But are there other areas that you're working on at the moment where the, the sort of public um, work that the, your institute is doing separate from smoking, which is the obvious one? I'm trying to think of where yeah, else sure. so in a sort of public um, sense you'd be involved. Yeah, so it's um, not the area that I work in, but we do also look at other cancer risk factors like alcohol, um, regulation of alcohol, regulation of um, junk food and other foods that lead to obesity that increases the risk of cancer as well. Um, and we've done some work in the past on um, occupational cancers, so things like asbestos and environmental hazards. I, I love the idea that the junk... I mean, with the complexities around what seems to me such a, a no-brainer as the sugar tax, mm. and we can't even get there, the idea that we could do something in a legislative sense around junk food and cancer seems to me light years away. Is that, mm. is that realistic? I think um, maybe eventually I think people probably didn't think that we would see the amazing advances we've seen in tobacco control 20, 30 years ago and we can take um, I think a lot of the learnings that we have learned through tobacco control and apply those to different cancer risk factors. They're all very different obviously, the different industries have got um, different facets but there's a lot of learning. Um, two weeks ago we had the Assistant um, Health Complaints Commissioner on this program and she was talking to us about the new Health Complaints Act that operates in Victoria. Is this, has this had an impact on some of your cancer patients? Because 
wouldn't they at some point have been subject to some fairly bogus claims about how to cure cancer from so-called health <coughs> practitioners who might not be registered health practitioners but would be purporting to offer remedies for cancer? I don't know what you're saying, Bill, about my Dr Casey Presents <laughs> site, but it's, it's very popular. Yeah, Lots Dr. of click-through. I loved Dr Casey when I was a kid too. <laughs> but uh, there is... Does this new legislation impact on these sort of cases? Because I would imagine cancer patients are targeted by a lot of these fringe dwellers yeah. in the health sector. Yeah, exactly. And we are really thrilled with the passage of the Health Complaints Act, um, and particularly the specific mention that it makes of cancer patients um, and protecting cancer patients from bogus cancer cure claims. Um, so the Act does contain a code of conduct for unregistered health practitioners that specifically prohibits people from saying they can cure cancer, from saying that they can treat or alleviate the symptoms of cancer if they can't substantiate those claims, from misrepresenting their qualifications, their products, services, training, and from financially exploiting people, which is really important because, as you say, there have been a lot of high-profile cases um, where people have preyed on the vulnerability of someone who's been diagnosed with cancer and charged them thousands of dollars for um, alternative therapies for which there's no evidence. And one of the biggest dangers of that, I think, is it turns people away from conventional medicine. That or, might... or, or delays the, yeah. un, the commencement of yeah. conventional treatment. Mm -hmm. And if, if someone's been through that, supposing I've had cancer and I decided because I read an advertisement somewhere that I'd go and have intravenous vitamin therapy and shark cartilage enemas for six months, spent a huge amount of money, read some claims that now I think are bogus. Who do I go to? First? It Is works, that... Nick. I'm telling you, it works if you give it a chance. Yeah, you get looking at how fit I look. <laughs> you grow fins on your back, though. <laughs> Do, it doesn't I, work, people. Disclaimer, ABC disclaimer, it doesn't work. Sorry, go on. But who would I go to? Do I come to the McCabe Centre? Do I go to the Health Complaints Commissioner? Would, who do I talk to so first up? Now, um, you would go to the Health Complaints Commissioner now that the new acts come into force. And they've got um, a lot uh, stronger powers now as well, which is another great change that the legislation brought. So the Commissioner now has the power to prohibit people from practising. Um, prohibit unregistered practitioners from practicing to place conditions on their practice where there's serious risks to people's health. Um, and the complaints can come from anyone, which I think is also another interesting development. So previously only the person who directly received the service could complain, but now um, if you're worried about a family member going to um, get shark cartilage enemas, then um, you can make the complaint yourself to the health complaints. So a relative can complain even without yep. having a direct vested interest yep. in the matter. And a clinician as well, which I think is important too, because we know from the clinicians that we've worked with that it's really hard for doctors to watch their patients um, being exploited in this way. So, so to the extent that if I happen to see on a website, for instance, a claim that I felt was bogus, I could, even though I've never received that treatment, I could make a formal complaint about that if, yeah. if I felt they were misrepresenting. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Nick, I wanted to ask you, is it, is it hard as a doctor um, these days to know how vigilant you need to be with, with sending patients for, I mean, I don't know if it's a these days question or whether it's always been hard, 
uh, to know how vigilant you need to be with sending patients off for, for you know, extra testing and all, that, and all that sort of stuff. Are you talking about screening testing to take yeah. healthy people? This is a very, very vexed area. Uh, and uh, Deborah's probably <laughs> come across cases where people complain they've been too much screened or not enough screened. Mm. Uh, people would love to feel that we can look for cancer early, prevent it. And uh, that's certainly true, but in a very limited range. So, yeah. you, you know, probably our most successful health prevention program in terms of cancer is pap smears and colorectal screening. So the, the government poo test kits, really effective. Getting pap smears done for women, really, really effective. Um, we then have we have mammography screening for breast cancer. Evidence not quite as strong as it is for those other two programs, but still well worth doing. And then we get into the murky waters of things like prostate mm -hmm. cancer screening, which is much more difficult and much less clear. The evidence isn't nearly so strong. And that's one where doctors really need to have a conversation with individual people, their individual risks, their family history and so on. So it's not an easy area at all, mm -hmm. cancer mm -hmm. prevention. It's much easier when we say to people, if you st spend a lot of time lying in the sun, you're more at risk of mm -hmm. melanoma. That's mm -hmm. a no-brainer. That's easy. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the others, it's much harder. Well, given that, Deborah, easy. Is, there, is that something that the McCabe Centre has to concern themselves with in terms of relating to doctors as well? As part of the service, we've been talking about patients more than anything else. You mentioned doctor education before. Mm. I mean, there is a bit of doctor education to be done, isn't there? Like end of life, for example. Mm. So, we, yeah, we do, um, we do run different types of education sessions for health practitioners. We've run um, a few webinars over recent years, um, including some on advanced care planning and how the law supports advanced care planning. So we run webinars for clinicians and also for people affected by cancer and their carers. Um, we've also, for example, developed training sessions for GPs actually in the Gippsland region um, in partnership with the Gippsland Region Palliative Care Consortium to um, train GPs about how to communicate about advanced care planning because I think people often find um, it difficult to bring up. Um, they think it's connected to death and dying yep. um, and find that difficult to bring up and talk about the different ways that the law supports that and how to interpret and apply the law. So we, we should touch on that because advanced care planning might not mean anything yeah. to people well, listening yeah. out there. Next St. Patrick's but, Day, it's, all, it's coming in. Well, so this is why it's so important. Mm. So, well, so, 12th of March next so, year. So just to sort of step by step, the really sort of basic guide to advanced care planning, what does it mean? Who should do it? Mm -hmm. So advanced care planning is the process of um, making plans for the future in case you should lose the ability to make your own medical decisions. And there are two main ways that people can go about that. And one is um, thinking about and talking about what kinds of medical treatments would or wouldn't be acceptable to them, um, what type of quality of life they'd be willing to accept for life-prolonging treatments or not, and then writing those wishes down so that people know um, what their wishes are if they lose the ability to communicate or to make their own decisions. And the other important element is um, really thinking carefully about who you would want to make medical decisions for you if you um, lose the ability to make your own. And the law will decide that for you if you don't think about that and you don't appoint someone specifically, mm. then there's a hierarchy in the legislation about who would make those decisions for you. Now, previously, though, we've always had powers of attorney. Mm -hmm. What's new about the new Act that's 
you know, why, why is this different? Why, I mean, we, you can make a medical power of attorney now, and mm-hmm. uh, you have to have an. A, well, uh, you tell me. Uh, yeah, well, go on. What's it, what, from March the twelfth? How will it be different? I mean, a doctor's going to be required to follow them because they're not required now. Yeah. So um, there's going to be a few changes. So currently, um, the only written document that has legal force in Victoria that clearly has legal force is the refusal of treatment certificate. And only people with a current condition can make one of those and and they have to be informed by their doctor about what the implications of that has to be witnessed. Um, And that's only to refuse treatment as well. So people can't say what they would want. It's just to refuse treatment. So the new law will allow people to write um, much broader advanced care directives. So there'll be an instructional directive by which you can say what you would consent to in addition to what you would refuse. I mean, you can do that in advance of having a medical condition. So any of us could do that, um, well, not today, from March next year, obviously. Um, It also, I think, one of the really important and interesting changes is it changes the basis on which people um, are expected to make decisions for you if you can't make your own. So currently, um, I think there's an expectation or an understanding that people are meant to consider your best interests when they make a decision for you if you can't make your own. But the new law will make it really clear that your medical treatment decision maker has to make the decision they think you would have made, regardless of whether it's the decision they think is best for you. They have to consider your wishes as you've written them down um, and make that decision for you instead. And what interests me about the the advanced care plans that I've seen, Mm. I've never yet seen someone write down, keep me alive at all costs, Mm, take every possible avenue, it doesn't matter whether I'm Mm. comatose, brain dead, Mm. keep me. everybody I've seen who's written an advanced care plan says, I want sensible treatment if there's a reasonable hope of survival, otherwise don't do too much. And yet our routine when people are in extremists is to do everything. There's this huge mismatch between what most people write that they want mm. and what we routinely do in medical practice. And that's what the research... You've been involved in a, with some t- couple of researchers in Queensland. I've mm. read their articles, yeah, actually. They're very great. good articles. Yeah. And that's about uh, when enough's enough, sort of, isn't it? It's about yeah, that yeah. aspect of doctors going too far, essentially. Yeah, so it's a, um, it's a research partnership with three cancer councils, Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland, and then, um, as you mentioned, Ben White and Lindy Wilmot from the QUT Australian Centre for Health Law Research and the University of Queensland. And what we're trying to find out over the course of three years um, and we're in the final stages now, is what the general public does know about their rights in end-of-life decision-making, what they know about refusing life-sustaining treatment, um, what they know about advanced care directives, about powers of attorney. Um, We're actually in a phase now where we're hoping to speak with um, Victorians who have an experience of of end-of-life treatment decision-making, so that might be people with um, advanced disease or terminal illness or carers of people um, with advanced disease or even bereaved carers and if people are interested to learn more about that study um, they can go to our website and find out more and contact me if they'd like to participate and if, can I say the website? Mm. Yep, so it's um, cancervic.org.au backwards slash end of life study or one word Right. It seems like the bereaved carers, in a way, would be the greatest resource because they're the ones who have actually been all the way through the situation. Yeah, and that's um, who I've been receiving the most calls from is Mm. people who have been bereaved in the last year or two and really want to talk about their experiences. 
Mm. My experience has always been that nurses, with due respect to Nick sitting alongside us, <coughs> nurses have always been better at knowing when enough's enough. That that a lot of doctors feel they've tried everything and they're not going to let go now. You know, mm. We're just going to keep soldiering on. We've got to keep this patient going. I've got a lot invested in this patient. You know, I'm going to let them die. Whereas the nurses will often say, look, you, this patient's had enough. Mm. You should let them go. You shouldn't be forcing treatment on them. Mm. Isn't there that, that aspect of this research that some of this will come out that doctors need to be better educated about what the patient would want? Yeah, I think quite possibly we'll, we'll get Not what the it. doctor wants? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think doctors are often very good at technical stuff, but mm. when you want just good common sense as well as technical stuff, ask the nurses. Mm. But to be fair to the doctors as well, they often have relatives pressuring them to keep the patient going as mm. well when they well know that perhaps enough was enough and mm. they shouldn't go any further. Yeah, and I think it's complicated by the fact the laws differ across all of the different states as well about... Um, about uh, withdrawing life-sustaining treatment and when that can be done and who can consent to that and who can refuse. So it's a pretty complicated area to expect doctors um, to be across as well. And I'm disappointed that my advanced care directive got shot down where I, I, I wanted someone in a monk's robe standing at the foot of my bed singing Britney Spears Toxic on the hour, every hour. Apparently oh. apparently, no dice for well, that from one. March oh. next year, you should try writing yeah. another one, I Doctors guess. are obliged to follow it or they'll, yeah. they'll, be, they'll be charged yeah. with misconduct. Mm-hmm. So that, that month's <laughs> in with a show. Can, it's can back. You, <laughs> can you state the quality of red wine you want to be fed in your final days? <laughs> I'm sure you can. You've been listening to Ritz and Cures with Bill O'Shea, Dr Nick Carr and Dr Deborah Lawson, who is a lawyer. Yeah. But also a doctor. And a proper doctor. A, a proper PhD doctor. A PhD a doctor. A lawyer doctor. Yeah. Uh, thank you all three of you for coming in this hour and uh, and enlivening the hour and enriching us educationally, if depressing me slightly. But that's all right. I'm going to find a way out of it. Uh, how do you keep your spirits up, Deborah? What's your, what's your secret at the end of the working day for going home and saying, hurrah? <laughs> um, I, I just think there's a lot of hope in, in cancer. Now we've seen great improvements in five-year survival rates for a lot of common cancers and even for those um, situations, I guess, where people don't survive a cancer diagnosis, knowing that we can contribute in some small way to making those processes easier or less confusing. Is, that doesn't sound that positive, does it? But it is. <laughs> People doing good. It really, yeah, you know, there's you nothing, that, nothing that depresses me more. Thank you very much to all three of you. 